Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The GX on Agriculture podcast is brought to you by Future Ford in Melville. When you're in the market for a new Ford, stop by Future Ford for a great selection of new and used vehicles. GX on Agriculture with Doug Falconer. Good afternoon and welcome to GX on Agriculture. Protecting wetlands in Saskatchewan and improving enforcement of illegal drainage is top of mind for an environmental group. The Saskatchewan Alliance for Water Sustainability held a news conference yesterday. We will hear what they had to say. Producers at the Saskatchewan Stock Growers Association convention in Moose Jaw yesterday heard details about a research project to identify the most forage-efficient cattle in an individual herd. Dr. Greg Penner with the University of Saskatchewan's Department of Animal and Poultry Science led the project, and he will speak about that. And Marlena Borsch of Mercantile Consulting Venture has provided her weekly overview of the wheat market. It was issued through the Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission. We'll have that for you coming up as well. So all of those stories and much more on today's edition of GX on Agriculture. One five. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Protecting wetlands in Saskatchewan and improving enforcement of illegal drainage is top of mind for an environmental group. On World Environment Day yesterday, the Saskatchewan Alliance for Water Sustainability, or SAWS, raised concerns about the Water Security Agency's new Agricultural Water Stewardship Program. The group says the policy lacks, among other things, requirements to restore drained wetlands and a plan to improve water quality already damaged by wetland drainage and other inappropriate land uses. The chair of SAWS, Ora Lee, says there needs to be a wetland policy in place, otherwise there is a negative trickle-down effect. Every year we've seen more and more wetlands to being destroyed without regulation, which means it's illegal drainage. Through rigorous Saskatchewan research, we have learned that wetland destruction causes downstream flooding, infrastructure damage, and degrades water quality, increasing toxic blooms, which we are seeing. This lack of regulation causes loss of income, loss of infrastructure, and changing how the hydrology of water works on our land. But even more, it is affecting our mental health. It causes those people downstream to lose, they have sleepless nights, they have fear and they have anxiety. And we are a province that prides ourselves on neighborliness. So when we don't have regulation, the neighborliness is gone. Lee says a wetland policy, in her opinion, needs to take into consideration multiple factors. It would look at water quality. It would be measuring, making sure that what's coming downstream is good water quality for everybody, and quantity, making sure that businesses are not being impacted, people are not having their insurance rates go through the roof. It, it would be creating neighborliness, and it would need regulation. It absolutely has to have regulation. Clint Blythe is a retired professional geologist 
and a rancher from the Pipestone Creek Valley, southeast of Mooseman. He says some watersheds in the province rely on wetlands. That's what supplies the base flow for those streams. So there's water in those streams in the summertime. And if you drain the majority of the land and it all runs off in 10 days in the spring, or if you get a big rainfall event, it's gone in 10 days. That water in this glacial till type soil, it doesn't have time to soak in enough to recharge the aquifers that provide the base flow for our rivers and lakes and streams in Saskatchewan. All you're gonna get is the quick surface runoff. If you happen to live where there's a lake with a dam on it, yeah, you're gonna get some of that, but you know, these people realize what's happening to that water quality. But for me, all I'm seeing is my land is, is flowing to Manitoba because of that. And the wetlands in Saskatchewan, especially in the parkland in the southeast, that's our glaciers. That's our snowpack equivalent to what's feeding the Saskatchewan River. We're, we're relying on, on glacial melt and snowpack to provide irrigation water for Diefenbaker and power generation, that kind of thing. The rest of Saskatchewan in the south, we don't have that. So every one of those wetlands out there, that's where our, that's our source of storage for water that will help us when there's drought. The NDP critic for the Water Security Agency, Erica Ritchie, says Saskatchewan is the only province without a wetland conservation policy. We're not asking the government for a lot here, just to develop a wetlands policy similar to those already in place in the neighboring jurisdictions of Manitoba and Alberta. We're not alone in these calls. Saskatchewan municipalities have been forced to create their own policies and have been calling for a province-wide strategy for several years. Our provincial auditor has flagged the need to develop policies around wetland retention and water quality. The Provincial Auditor's 2021 report says the Water Security Agency needs to improve enforcement of unapproved drainage projects and Ritchie agrees. There are policies in place right now that are not being put into effect. It's complaint-based. It's a system that is basically effectively results in no action on the part of this government to put a stop to that drainage and farmers and other corporate entities know that. They know that they can continue to ignore it because there is no enforcement and, and that you need to send a strong, clear signal that the policies that currently are in place need to be followed. The Saskatchewan Alliance for Water Sustainability is undertaking a letter-writing campaign to urge Premier Scott Moe to develop a wetland policy like Alberta and Manitoba. It's time now for the Beef and Forage Report, and that's a presentation of Co-op Hail Insurance. Beef and Forage Report. For the week ending Sunday, Western Canadian feeder cattle markets traded $6 to $8 higher. In some cases, quality yearling packages traded as much as $10 above week-ago levels, Live and feeder cattle futures closed the week eight to nine dollars U.S. higher, as traders monitored flooding conditions in Texas. Feeding margins continue to percolate higher as the fed cattle market experiences a counter-seasonal trend. Stronger buying interest was noted across all weight categories. There was limited slippage on fleshier types in the heavier weight categories. 
In some cases, the heifer discount to steers appeared to narrow, with finishing operators anxious to secure numbers for the fall period. Auction market volumes will decline over the next month, and tighter supplies continue to underpin the overall feeder complex. And that's today's Beef and Forage Report. It's time now for the Ag Review portion of our program, and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. DX94 Ag Review. When a Winkler, Manitoba area farmer started to plant his 600 plus acres of soybeans this year, the soil had pretty decent moisture content. But following the combination of hot temperatures and strong winds with little rainfall in May, precipitation is now much needed. Tobin Dick notes the pace of spring planting in Manitoba's Red River Valley region had noticeably picked up after a later than usual start. From what he has surmised, the amount of acres seeded with soybeans as well as pulses has increased this year, at least in the valley region. Another issue Dick pointed out that posed a challenge this spring was fertilizer. Not so much its overall supply, but rather getting it to the fields, as suppliers seemed to be short on trucks to move product to where farmers needed it. That may have led to farmers switching from other crops to soybeans. The National Farm Animal Care Council has ended its work to develop an updated National Code of Practice for Livestock Transport for Canada after over four years of work. The Council, a division of Animal Health Canada, in December of 2018 had started work to update the Transport Code, which meant national on-farm codes of practice. Since then, however, the Lacombe, Alberta-based organization said it has had to take into consideration the February 2019 update to federal regulations governing transportation of animals in Canada. The federal regulations have been materially and significantly amended and evergreen interpretive guidance added, which made it difficult to envision the role and purpose of an updated code. Those in favor of creating a federal right to repair law say the government should avoid shaping such legislation according to the wishes of special interest lobbyists as Ottawa gets set to launch consultations on the issue. Ottawa signaled in its March budget that it would study the need for legislation to ban the sale of products that aren't intended to last and reinforce consumers' ability to repair the home appliances and electronics they buy. Alyssa Centivani, an assistant professor at Western University, says national right-to-repair rules would be critical in the agriculture, healthcare, and consumer goods sectors, which often face restrictions on third-party repair technicians. Natasha Tusakov, an associate professor at York University, says the lack of such protections in Canada places the country behind its counterparts, such as the United States and Australia. RCMP say an appeal for information has produced considerable information about the deaths of 17 Skeechsin traditional horses west of Kamloops, B.C. The remains of the wild horses were found in early March near Walhatchen, and police said at the time that the herd had been shot. Corporal James Grady says the RCMP's livestock section continues to investigate, and despite the many tips, it still hopes someone has information that could crack the case. Grady says the Skeechston band 
has been a vital partner in efforts to determine what happened, but despair continues to resonate through the community as they seek answers and closure. Cannabis retailer Fire and Flower Holdings Corporation says it has received a court order for creditor protection under the company's Creditors Arrangement Act. The company had been pursuing additional financing to raise capital to fund its operations. It says the board determined that it was in the best interests of the company to file an application for creditor protection following a review of its strategic options and a consideration of all of its available alternatives. Fire and Flower operates under several banners, including the Fire and Flower, Friendly Stranger, and Firebird Delivery brands. The company says its board will remain in place and management will remain responsible for the day-to-day operations under the oversight of a court-appointed monitor while it works to streamline operations and conduct a sales process for the business. And be sure to listen to the latest GX on Agriculture podcast. It's brought to you by Future Ford in Melville. Future Ford has been serving the Melville area for over 30 years. They focus on the future. Their staff are ready for what's to come. Ford Tech is changing all the time with new vehicle technology like EV, self-driving, and more. Get ready to drive into the future. Why? Because the future is Future Ford. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. I'm Doug Falconer. It's sunny and 30 degrees in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at the top of the hour. Producers at the Saskatchewan Stock Growers Association convention in Moose Jaw yesterday heard details about a research project to identify the most forage-efficient cattle in an individual herd. Dr. Greg Penner with the University of Saskatchewan's Department of Animal and Poultry Science led the project with the cooperation of several cattle producers. So we wanted to take an approach that really does not, or at least in our opinion, does not prioritize or de-emphasize individual breeds. So we selected criteria that we think are important for every breed of cattle. And so the approach we took was to use a long-term selection approach. So this was a two-year selection approach with collaboration from Dr. Bart Lardner at the Western Beef Development Centre at the time, now part of Livestock uh, Ford Centre of Excellence. And we characterize these cows based on their ability to maintain body condition or back fat during the winter grazing period while they're out on kind of extensive grazing systems, their ability to calve early in the calving season, and their ability to wean a heavy calf relative to the weight of the cow. He explains how it works. Yeah, we wanted everything to be quantitative rather than qualitative. So we have hard data for everything. So we monitor body condition using ultrasound back fat. So we're actually measuring the fat thickness as those cows are approaching calving. We also recorded the calving dates, so we know when they calved within the calving season. And we recorded both calf weight and cow weight throughout the study so that we could represent calf weight as a function of their cow's weight. Penner says they came up with some numbers that these animals should fall between. Well, what we did really was rank them uh, relative to their peers. And I think this is one of the strengths of this system because it, it allows individual producers to compare cattle within their own herd 
rather than comparing across herds. And as soon as you get into cross herd comparisons, that's when the breed characteristics would influence what those benchmark numbers would be. And so this is a way that we could identify cows that are adapted to the system that individual producers are utilizing and create a metric where producers can use data that many are already recording, but use it in a way that allows them to select animals that are more efficient. The other part of this project was really to understand why they're more efficient. So once we selected our efficient and inefficient cows, we selected the ones that had the highest score and the ones that had the lowest score, and we compared whether they could perform similarly on different diets, whether the efficiency ranking was related to how they consume feed or digest feed, so diet digestibility, or if there were some other factors that were involved. And this is where we found some really interesting results, and it supports what we saw in the field. So even when we brought those high and low efficient cows into a barn so that we could do more detailed measurements, those high efficient cows, again, gained more back fat. So it reinforced the field study that showed that they had a greater ability to maintain their body condition during winter. They also did not eat more when we measure it in kilos or pounds per day, but because they were lighter, when we measure it as a percentage of body weight, they actually ate more feed as a percentage of body weight, and they were able to take advantage of the digestible material better by excreting less digestible components of the feed in their feces faster. So there were real digestive physiology differences that allowed these cows to thrive under all different qualities of diets. Dr. Greg Penner is a professor in the Department of Animal and Poultry Science at the University of Saskatchewan. More on the 4-H Efficient Cattle Study right after this. Livestock Market Conditions U.S. live cattle futures for August are closed at 175.50 today. That's up 222. October live cattle closed at 178.25, up 192. August feeder cattle closed at 243.25, up 65. September feeder cattle closed at 246.52, up 90. July lean hogs closed at 88.32, up 417. August lean hogs closed at 84.50, up 287. And that's the livestock market conditions. We're back with Dr. Greg Penner, a professor in the Department of Animal and Poultry Sciences at the University of Saskatchewan. He explains how producers will be able to use their study results on their herds. We're making, uh, I would say, strong advancement to help create a tool so that if producers do want to use this approach, they can. There's, there's a few things producers need first. One is, obviously, they need a scale. And, and I think many beef producers now are recording cow weights or recording calf weights. And this is a really important tool, not only for this feed efficiency ranking system, but just so you know sale weights and you can 
evaluate the weight of your herd so you can predict what the nutritional requirements are. So producers need a scale. They need to write down those measurements. They need to have some assessment of body condition score as those cows are calving. So we used ultrasound, but ultrasound is a quantitative alternative to um, a qualitative assessment of body condition score. So producers, if they're putting their hands on their cows and assessing their body condition score and documenting that, we believe that would be an easy replacement. And then producers also need to record the day of calving within their calving season. So if they have those three pieces of data, we have created an initial Excel macro that allows them to enter that data and calculate their feed efficiency. And we're exploring options to make that macro a little more user-friendly and allow for broader application. He believes you can save a lot of money by having a more efficient cow. Yeah, we've gone through uh, some of those values, but there's a number of ways that we need to think about this. First one is we often talk about feed efficiency as saving costs, and that's an important part. But sometimes we lose sight about what drives revenue of beef producers. And the first part that drives revenue is a cow that actually produces a calf. And after she has that calf, weans a calf with a sufficient body weight. And so that's why we were using that metric, because it's an important component of the revenue uh, factors for beef operations. Having a calf earlier in the calving season also allows that calf more days to grow. So that calf is typically heavier at a constant uh, marketing date. And so we're really not looking at a reduction in cost, but we're looking at strategies that will actually help improve revenue. And Penner says it's been an important research project. I think the other part is, you know, this is really a a grassroots driven project that was initiated by producers, the Saskatchewan stock growers, proudly funded by Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Association through their industry development fund and very generous support coming from the, the provincial government of Saskatchewan through the Agricultural Development Fund. We also had a very wide range of collaborators, so a fantastic student named Justin Delver uh, really led the initial work of this project. And we have an ongoing student uh, looking at the genetics behind this feed efficiency calculation. And Lane Radwell is the student working with Dr. Mika Sai-Cokewell. And some of that will also be shown at the upcoming uh, Livestock Forage Center of Excellence Field Day. Dr. Greg Penner is a professor in the Department of Animal and Poultry Science at the University of Saskatchewan. Please stay tuned. Your commodities update is coming up next. Commodities update. Canola futures closed up across the board today. July canola closed at 669.90, up $14.80. November canola closed at 647.40, up $16.30. July Minneapolis wheat closed at 816.5, down three and three quarters of a cent. July Kansas City wheat closed at 820 and a quarter, down two cents. July Chicago wheat closed at 627 and three quarters, 
up three and three quarters of a cent. July corn closed at 6.08 per bushel, up ten and a half cents. July soybeans closed at 13.53 and a quarter, up three and a quarter cents. July oats closed at 3.46 and three quarters, up three and three quarters of a cent. And that's the commodities update. Welcome back to GX on Agriculture. Marlena Borsch of Mercantile Consulting Venture has provided her weekly overview of the wheat market. It was issued through the Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission. As a very broad overview of the global markets, the June Amis review of the wheat numbers concluded that global wheat production for the new crop year would fall by about 3%. Wheat utilization would stay the same as last year's, but trade would likely contract by 3% due to declines in feed use, and ending stocks would decline very slightly, minus 0.7% due to declines in Russia and the EU. Meanwhile, FOB cash prices for wheat have adjusted down further, as shown with the FOB price comparison graph in the written report. In terms of cash markets last week, Korea bought 65,000 tons of feed wheat for November arrival at 259 per ton, reportedly basis black sea grain. This means grains from the Balkans, as Ukraine and Russian load ports were excluded. Saudi Arabia tendered on Friday for 480,000 tons of wheat for September to October arrival. There are no official results yet, but we hear that Saudi Arabia booked 634,000 tons at various ports at around $262 US per ton CNF. Freight should be around $42 per ton, but freight is hard to pack down right now. This would mean Russian wheat is priced around 2.30 per ton or less. The Baltic Panama index has fallen by 45% in the last eight weeks, making the freight values difficult. And US weekly sales for the 22-23 crop showed cancellations of 210,000 tons, a marketing year low, but up noticeably from the previous week. New crop sales were shown at 466,000 tons, bringing the forward book to 2.7 million tons. Now here are some comments by Major Wheat Origin, starting with Canada per usual. To begin with spring wheat growing conditions, Saskatchewan Ag is reporting 87% of seeded spring wheat in good to excellent condition, 12% in fair condition and 1% in poor condition. About 48% of spring wheat acres are in Saskatchewan. Another 17% of spring wheat acres are in Manitoba, and they are also in good condition. The remaining roughly 35% spring wheat acres are in Alberta, where we have major moisture deficits. 65% of Alberta soils show poor to fair conditions only. Regarding U.S. spring wheat, favorable weather has continued to allow for excellent seeding progress. Overall, crop development is well ahead of last year's and in line with the five-year average. Regarding Canadian exports at 341,000 tons in week 43, we are just below the year-to-date weekly average of 382,000 tons. Year-to-date wheat exports reached 16.5 million tons and are up and are 7 million tons higher than last year's exports. 
However, cash prices have continued to weaken with aggressive offers by Russia, but there also is uncertainty about weather developments, growing conditions for the 2023 crop. Basically, this remains a very convoluted market. On the one hand, concern is growing about China and the flooding in Henan province, rain that is slowing the U.S. harder winter harvest, and heat that is persisting across uh, Canada. Russian crop conditions are mixed, and the Ukrainian grain corridor seems to have been halted. On the other hand, the Saudi Arabian tender will have no impact on U.S. grains, as the nominal Russian price is still close to $120 or well below the hard red winter values in the Gulf. We would therefore sell more spring wheat for up to 50% commitments. Moving on to Durham, the crop conditions per Sask Ag are 87% in good to excellent condition in Saskatchewan, 13% in fair condition and 0% in poor condition. About 83% of Durham acres are in Saskatchewan. Another 17% of them are in Alberta, where there are major moisture deficits. In the US, Durham planting made quick progress with North Dakota 73% complete and Montana 78% complete as of May 30th. Emergence is good, and while official Durham crop condition reports are not yet available, we are told the crop looks quite good. Canadian Durham exports for week 43 at 15,000 tons were unusually small. The year-to-date weekly average is 105,000 tons. Year-to-date total export volume reached 4.5 million tons and is more than double last year's exports. Again, AFC projects 22-23 Durham exports to reach 4.8 million tons, which would leave only about 309,000 tons to ship over the next nine weeks. We think this year's exports should, be, should reach 4.2 million tons, reducing ending stocks accordingly. We are sold out of old crop and would wait before selling additional new crop durum. Moving to the US, while we already talked about US spring wheat and durum crop conditions, which are pretty good, we also talked about weekly export sales, um, which were uh, net cancellations of 210,000 tons for old crop, which brings us to 685 million bushel total commitments as of May 25th. That is only 88.3% of the forecast by USDA with one week left in the season. Compare that with the European Commission reports, which put the season's exports from the EU at 28.4 million tons, up 11% from last year's pace. As mentioned, the ongoing Saudi Arabian tender will have no impact on U.S. grains, as the nominal Russian price is still well below hard red winter values in the Gulf. For Australia, well, Australia so far avoided the worst of the El Nino effects, and new crop futures there hit contract lows midweek last week. But here's a note on the stats. Both the USDA and Abaris are using close to trend yields in their 28 to 29 million ton crop estimates for the new crop. But in El Nino years, Australian yields can drop from 5 to 50 percent below trend yields. September is a key month for the Australian crop, which is exactly when El Nino is anticipated to peak. 
In Argentina, Bosch estimated crop plantings to be 6% complete on an expected 6.3 million hectare total. This is down from the original 6.7 million, hec million hectare estimate and is now below the USDA's 6.5 million hectare harvested number. In China, according to the state weather forecasters last Thursday, China's largest wheat producing province, Henan, is expected to be hit by more rain in the coming days. This would further complicate efforts to harvest grain damaged by abnormally high height precipitation in late May. According to some sources, an estimated 30 million of the 137 million expected crop is deemed unfit for human consumption. This will have to be confirmed. For the EU, the European forecasts show rain in the south and in the Balkans, but leave the bulk of the crops in the north dry in the coming week. But according to Franz Agermeer, wheat ratings hover at record high levels, demonstrating the potential for an above average crop in Europe. And Brussels raised at 23-24 ending stocks 9.5 million tons above the USDA's. Moving to the Black Sea, there still is no transparency on the Russian floor price for wheat, meaning does it still exist and if so, what is it? And there's a wide range of freight estimates for the tender following the recent slump in the freight market. Regarding the Saudi Arabian tender for wheat, Romanian 12.5% protein wheat was reported offered at last Thursday at 237 per ton and with a freight advantage over Russia, Russian wheat will have to be aggressive again to get the business. Weather is still an issue, too dry in Northern Europe, Ukrainian and Russian spring wheat regions, too wet and cold in Russian winter wheat regions. And Russia has reportedly again blocked the grain corridor. So how would we summarize this week? Current weather conditions are benign and our report suggests an average to above average crop globally is possible. On the demand side, poor local exchange rates and belt tightening seem to keep demand low. Currently, Russian wheat is the cheapest milling wheat and the best priced feed grain for many buyers. In the meantime, we expect futures to open initially stronger, which it has, but weaker by the end of the week, assuming no weather catastrophe. We would sell more spring wheat to up to 50% committed. That's Marlena Borsch of Mercantile Consulting Venture in Winnipeg. It's time now to check the GX94 Precision Weather Forecast for the Quill Lakes, Hudson Bay, Swan River, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, and Yorkton, Melville, Roblin, Russell regions. A heat warning remains in effect. For today, partly sunny with a 20% chance of showers. Winds south-southwest at 10 to 20, a high of 32. For tonight, a few clouds with a 30% chance of showers, a light wind and a low of 18. For tomorrow, partly sunny with a 50% chance of late-day showers and thunderstorms. Winds south-southwest at 10 to 20, a high of 31, an overnight low of 17. For Thursday, partly to mainly sunny, winds north-northeast at 10 to 20, a high of 27. For Friday, mainly sunny, a high of 25, and Saturday, sunny, a high of 24. 
In the Paw and Swan River, it's 32 degrees. Dauphin and Brandon, 31. Show Lake Russell and Roblin, 30. Regina is at 31. Saskatoon, 24. Hudson Bay, Broadview Mooseman and Winyard Wadena Kelvington all reporting in at 29. Indian Head, 32. The Yorkton-Melville region has a mainly sunny sky, a southwest wind at 12 kilometers an hour. 43% is the relative humidity. The temperature is 30 degrees. With the humidex, it feels more like 36 degrees. That's your agriculture weather, and that'll do it for GX on Agriculture for today. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow at 12.15 Saskatchewan time for another edition of the program. It's time now for the news and sports headlines. The GX on Agriculture podcast has been brought to you by Future Ford in Melville. Future Ford is your automotive expert. From sales to service, they're the ones you can trust to get rolling again sooner.